Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I hope you participated in the Giving Tuesday that we did for the Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting. Had a special uh, long Nachum Siegel JM in the AM six-hour marathon back on Tuesday. And... What a week it has been in the world of politics. It's not just the impeachment palooza. I like that name that's uh, been thrown out there. But we had a marathon day of hearings yesterday. And it, it was actually at the one time, at one, excuse me, on one end, a little bit of a snoozer. It was very uh, constitutional law type of discussion. But at the same time, did produce some interesting, uh, what I thought particularly some interesting points uh, with regard to impeachment. I find the whole thing to be totally fascinating. Um, I say it now, I'll say it again. I find what happens with Ukraine to be troubling. I don't think that this is something that we should be removing the President of the United States from office for. Um, having said that, I don't think that the defense that the Republicans are mounting has been a particularly good one, an absolutist defense. And I think that was kind of evident from yesterday as well. Uh, what the setup was for constitutional scholars, it seems that the Democrats got three witnesses who were kind of unanimous on different aspects of whether the president should be impeached, whether President Trump should be impeached, different aspects of that. And one called by the Republicans, Jonathan Turley, who I thought was particularly interesting. Uh, I've seen him on TV before. He's a commentator. He was a critic of the Clinton impeachment, and he's a critic of the Trump impeachment as well. Although... Seemingly not in the way that Republicans would have expected. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, he got up in his opening statement and essentially said, I don't like Trump. Uh, actually, let me just read from his opening statement. I'll give it that. He said, first, I'm not a supporter of President Trump. I voted against him in 2016, and I have previously voted for Presidents Clinton and Obama. Second, I have been highly critical crit, critical of President Trump, his policies, and his rhetoric in dozens of columns. Third, but there needs to be a third after this, I have repeatedly criticized his raising of the investigation of the Hunter Biden matter with the Ukrainian president. This was the Republican witness. This was the guy that the Republicans brought to defend the president. So either you have a situation where they couldn't find anybody else, which I kind of doubt. You can always find people. There are plenty of people, plenty of people with credentials out there who can go ahead and represent a certain viewpoint. Or Turley is a good arguer, which I thought he was, and he held his own very... Uh, and they just essentially want to kind of thought it might be beneficial to kind of concede the point that even somebody who thought the president uh, 
is not necessarily a great president, not necessarily a great individual, not necessarily a political supporter of his, and somebody who thinks that the call was inappropriate and the entire push of the quid pro quo, etc., even if you accept all the facts that came out of the Intelligence Committee, it's still not impeachable. It still should not be impeachable. But the interesting thing as well, as we got to his testimony, was that he basically said, and, and I totally agree with this, is that the process has not run its course. You want to do this, you got to really engage in the process. And yes, the White House won't cooperate. And yes, it's unprecedented. And yes, well, too bad. Deal with it. Okay, go to the courts. They got victory this week with Don McGahn. A judge said he had to testify. Go to the courts. Enforce your subpoenas. Get the people that you need to testify. And have a real process if you want to investigate the Ukraine matter and what happened. And there is something to be said, or a lot to be said, truthfully, for the fact that the Democrats have a political timetable, that they want to wrap this up by year's end, that they feel that they need to get this done for their politics, for presidential politics, for congressional politics. And they want to just get it done by the end of the year. They want to have a vote before the end of December and throw it to the Senate and have that trial and have that be over, essentially, before the Iowa caucuses in February. Now, Turley brings up a great point, and I think a lot of Republicans kind of echoed that and they pointed out, is that that's not how it's supposed to work. That's not the that's not what's best for the country. If you really believe that the president committed high crimes and misdemeanors, you should have some first-hand evidence of it. We can all suppose, because we kind of come to know President Trump over the last couple of years, we can all suppose as kind of, oh, okay, this is what happened. This must be what happened. But at the same time, we don't actually know because we don't have the key witnesses. Yes, the White House is blocking them. Should they be blocking them? Clearly not, according to we've seen court rulings. But, but having said that, we would benefit, the country would benefit from having John Bolton testify, from having Mick Mulvaney testify, who kind of already admitted in public that there was a quid pro quo. Okay, we would benefit from having Rudy Giuliani testify, although I'm probably not going to as the president's lawyer, although he is also apparently the attorney and working for a whole bunch of other cast of characters out there. And in fact, Giuliani, inexplicably, at the same time the impeachment hearings are going on, is in Ukraine, according to reports, meeting with some of the same people and conducting this shadow foreign policy, which is kind of at the heart of some of the issues. That's the thing that I have the biggest problem with. I don't necessarily, look, I think the, the, the whole thing with the phone call was kind of unseemly. Um, but what I definitely have a problem with is an unelected, unappointed, unconfirmed agent of the president of the United States, who is also his lawyer. And I have respect for Rudy Giuliani. Um, but running around Ukraine essentially wreaking havoc with U.S. foreign policy because he's doing whatever he can to kind of 
whether it is true or not true, whether it's lies, disinformation, etc. Um, in the name of trying to exonerate the president. It's just... And then, of course, pushing for our ambassador to be recalled with this whole campaign, shadow campaign, against her and to try and upend U.S. foreign policy. So there's just so much to that. But again, back to Turley, a very interesting witness for the Republicans to call. You think about that. You think about whether he is, you know, why he was their choice. The other three... Uh, Seems to be very straightforward. I mean, there were a couple questions. Obviously, you have the usual thing. Everybody, the five-minute rounds, the Democrats. And I, I have to, I would admit I couldn't watch the whole thing. It just, it's just too much. Um, you get the five-minute rounds, and everybody wants to speak. Everybody wants to pontificate. And, of course, there are some times you look at there comically, and there are five-minute rounds. And some of the, and the witnesses are sitting there, and these uh, law professors are sitting there, and they're taking notes on what they think might be a question. They think there might be a question coming their way, so they're taking notes on what the member of Congress is saying. Instead, no, there's just a speech for five minutes. It just, they got to listen to the them speak. Uh, there were a couple little bit of fireworks episodes. But that's uh, not necessarily all that remarkable. I did find one interesting thing that Doug Collins, the ranking member, said. And I found it a little, he, he, he was critical. I don't have the verbatim in front of me, and it doesn't really matter. But Doug Collins basically said, well, none of you guys are fact witnesses. We have these witnesses here to kind of interpret what the framers of the Constitution might have meant when they talked about impeachment and they're and they're being asked to sit in for the framers and to tell us their intent well actually that's what constitutional law scholars do that's what supreme court judges do that's what judges do that's the whole point of constitutional law is to try and understand the intent of the framers to understand what the language of the constitution means that's why, exactly why they're there and he's kind of critical of them or at least it seemed critical in the question of them being there because they don't add anything to the discussion. And as if um, now maybe some of the members of the Judiciary Committee felt that they did not need their Con, con Law 101 class yesterday and they took umbrage at that. Now that's certainly possible. But uh, having said that, um, that comment I kind of struck me as a little bit funny. Uh, not a great week so far for the president. Uh, this morning, Nancy Pelosi is going to be speaking, giving a press conference at 9 a.m. Uh, we are recording a little bit before that. Don't know what that's going to be about, so that might affect the news. I assume it's going to be about impeachment. I don't know which way that's going to mean. They're going to speed it up. They're going to slow it down. They're going to wait for subpoenas. They're going to wait for the courts. Who knows? Uh, I think Jerry Nadler did a pretty good job managing the committee. It's a big committee. It's much larger than the Intelligence Committee. There was some expectations that he was going to lose control and that it was going to be problematic. And... Well, again, let's just get back to it. Not a great week for the president. Obviously, when you're facing impeachment 
as it is, it's not going to be a great week. But it was a little bit worse because sometimes the presidents, they go overseas, they do foreign policy, and they get a little bit arrested. They get some good headlines out of it. And I don't know that the president deserved all the bad headlines that came out of the NATO summit in London, but a little bit is kind of the, I hate to say it, this kind of reap what you sow situation. And, you know, some of this has worked for for the president in the past. Some of the unpredictability of his foreign policy, him going to different nations and saying different things and throwing everybody off balance and then foreign leaders try and please him and they try and make him happy. And I think that's worked for him a little bit and that's worked for the for maybe the United States as well. This time it certainly didn't seem to be the case. It seemed right away that President Macron of France was going to put be very aggressive and put President Trump off balance. I, I think we found that President Trump does not like to be, you know, he likes to be the aggressor. He likes to be the one kind of setting the agenda and in charge, um, you know, projecting. Now, Macron essentially, you know, had a, they had a public discussion with regard to ISIS, with regard to Turkey, and threw it all at President Trump's feet, what was going on there. And uh, at one point, President Trump, made a joke about uh, whether he wants whether France wants ISIS fighters and uh, or wants their ISIS fighters back and Macron basically said in front of all the cameras you know let's get serious here and uh, that was interesting because you know President Trump really has a history of kind of in these discussions of making these quips I'll call them um, not necessarily serious constructive policy discussions, but you know, making everything into a little bit of a soundbite. And I think the meeting kind of got tense. I mean, it looked very tense. And then, of course, there was this dust up with uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, who was on a hot mic criticizing, and they clearly, he and uh, Trump do not get along, and that's kind of long-seated. He, uh, President Trump has criticized Trudeau um, in the past and continues to do so, called him two-faced this time, but Trudeau seems to have the other members of NATO, certainly in his corner, in not feeling the love for President Trump uh, there, but, you know, a lot of this is because the president has attacked NATO He has, and has attacked some of these countries. I mean, let's not forget Denmark, where he was supposed to go there and he canceled the visit because they refused to sell him Greenland. I mean, that sounds like a manufactured foreign policy crisis, if I've heard of one. So some of this is is exactly that, is you're kind of left with people who aren't really that enamored. Some of the shine has worn off. Some of the luster is gone. And they've decided that the best way to approach the president, uh, if they're nice to him, he's he can still be a little confrontational because I think he wants to score political points. And scoring political points with the Republican base at the expense of Europe has actually been uh, tried and true over the last, uh, since the George W. Bush days. Uh, I remember back in 2004 that we uh, Republicans continued to attack John Kerry for being too French 
and that is has always been a good points uh, scorer. So that having said that, that I mean there is a there is something to that. There is something to that. Um, the other the other thing, of course, uh, in the backdrop of the British election, which is in a week, um, actually I, two weeks from now, is that Boris Johnson, who's seemingly the guy who wants to who kind of wants to be ride that kind of Trump populist wave, anti-Brexit wave, and who's actually looking pretty good because the incredible weakness, the incredible weakness of the Labour Party in um, in the elections, and despite the fact that Johnson himself is incredibly unpopular, um, looks like he might win. Boris Johnson did not want to be anywhere near Trump, did not want to be seen with Trump, and that kind of deprived President Trump of of a good ally to be standing there with. So he goes there. He's not particularly, uh, doesn't particularly have a good time and coming back, having impeachment. We're also facing, you know, potential government shutdown. There's all kinds of things. The legislative agenda is not happening. Uh, USMCA was our trade deal with Canada and Mexico. That doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. So there's just not a lot of great news on the horizon right now for the president. And, of course, now facing uh, re-election and how to get in there. The good news is he has a ton of money. And he continues to raise money at a very impressive clip. He also has a hold on the Republican Party that is quite impressive for it. Nobody seems to be going anywhere. None of the Republicans seem to be defecting on impeachment in the House. Not a single one of them, even those that are retiring. And there is very little, if not total, muted... Uh, opposition to the president, even any criticism of the president right now in the Senate. And, you know, there's been this floating out there that maybe they would go with a censure resolution um, and as an escape, essentially. Now, maybe we would, you know, obviously we can't remove him, but we would censure the actions with regard to Ukraine. And that would seem to be a particularly uh, attractive option for quite a few senators in battleground states, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, um, uh, Arizona. I mean, some of these places where are where Republicans have to Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Uh, some of these states, even uh, in Georgia, two se- two Senate seats coming up in Georgia. We're going to get to that in a second, which is actually a continuation of the president's kind of bad week politically. Um, so there are a, a bunch of states which are now become very, very much swing states um, or purple states in 2020, um, including those, as I mentioned, Georgia and North Carolina. We've seen from elections, just like the way Virginia went solidly blue in local races, uh, Georgia and North Carolina are similarly situated type states demographically, Southern, lots of uh, changing demographics, lots of suburbs, and that are kind of, that have moved away from the Republican Party in significant numbers as well, um, you know, Western states like Arizona and Colorado. So, oh, as for Georgia, 
uh, politically bad news. Governor Brian Kemp chose Kelly Loeffler, a wealthy businesswoman, to fill the term of retiring Johnny Isaacson, who uh, resigned for health reasons. Johnny Isaacson, a great guy, incredibly pro-Israel, um, known him for years, and really a, uh, a super guy, um, resigned. And President Trump desperately wanted Doug Collins and made it very clear, very clear that he wanted Doug Collins as the pick that uh, for that Senate seat. He wanted Doug Collins, I guess, for impeachment, and Doug Collins, the ranking member, we saw him yesterday on the Judiciary Committee, felt that Doug Collins would be an outspoken advocate for the president. Kelly Loeffler, um, wealthy businesswoman, possibly uh, kind of untested uh, politically. But I guess Brian Kemp, as in general with politicians, they look at what's going to help themselves, and I think rightly so, politically. Uh, having a successful businesswoman, even though she's conservative, obviously pro-life um, and unapologetically conservative, uh, she wasn't. It wasn't. She wasn't the same loyalty to Trump. And not only did the president, uh, when word got out there that Loeffler was going to be picked, not only was the president and others, his allies, kind of savage, like Matt Getz, uh, congressman from uh, Florida, decided to to go into Twitter war with uh, with Brian Kemp, even threatening a primary. Uh, that is odd to say the least that a congressman would go ahead and threaten a primary um, against a governor of the same party because they didn't fulfill the wishes of the president. Um, so we'll, we will see, but that certainly was definitely was definitely not a win for Trump. And you see sometimes that these things, investing political capital in some of these fights is just not worth it. And we discussed this in past weeks, is that here you go, you've invested a lot of political capital, public political capital, in trying to get Doug Collins appointed to this seat. Probably not necessary. And one thing, in his press conference in London, the president also talked about the fact that uh, that he was doing well politically because he went to Kentucky and he went to Louisiana uh, to campaign for the governor's races there, and they did better than they expected, but they lost. So I'm not sure exactly. But anyway, getting back to censure for a second, uh, I don't know that that will happen. It doesn't seem like any Republicans are receptive to it. It doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere. And um, that seems to be the case is that let's be in lockstep entirely with the president. He did nothing wrong. We're not going to, we are not going to. Uh, go ahead and concede anything whatsoever. Okay, we got to talk about the Democrats. Going to have a little bit of time, little bit of time left. Uh, we have three dropouts this week, including one big one, and that big one is not Joe Sestak, uh, congressman from Pennsylvania, former admiral. Uh, yes, he's out. Uh, then the big one was not Steve Bullock, governor of Montana, uh, a uh, moderate, and he's out. Uh, the big one was Kamala Harris or Kamala. I'm not Kamala. Kamala. Kamala Harris. Out. Uh, one time she was top tier. She was front runner. She was there. She took on Joe Biden in a uh, very viral, meaningful way. And it was thought that she was going to kind of be the breakout star of the 2020 Democratic primary. She is out of the race. She is not continuing anymore. Um, 
really didn't catch fire, couldn't go anywhere. Taken down in the next debate after that by Tulsi Gabbard over uh, prosecutions of of uh, marijuana possession, etc. And uh, just a spectacular fall from a campaign that just, by all accounts, could not organize itself and could not uh, get it together, quote unquote. So that was a uh, fascinating uh, study in uh, inept campaigns. It just didn't go anywhere. Uh, so what we have on the debate stage right now is, and this is kind of getting a lot of play, is that they are not, there are no uh, people of color. There's just white people on the stage. Uh, what you have looking now for December 19th is Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Jamie Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang apparently have a chance to get on there, uh, to get on that debate stage, but but right now they are not on. And I think you have to qualify at some, sometime this week, very, very soon. Um, you got to hit 4% in four polls approved by the DNC. So we will have to see whether uh, they've both hit the fundraising threshold. Now, the other person who's not on there, who is absolutely carpet bombing the entire uh, world, every state with ads, is Mike Bloomberg. And let's see where he is, uh, where where he, you know, upends this race to a certain degree. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he has no monetary limitations. He doesn't have to get out. In fact, Dom Steyer is probably thinking, <coughs> "Excuse me, I was the billionaire here, and now I'm being uh, now I'm being subsumed by another guy who's spending a lot more than I am." So we will have to see. Um, the one interesting thing about Bloomberg that storyline from this week is his Bill De Blasio, who dropped out himself uh, for running for president, if anybody still remembers that he actually ran for president. Not many outside of New York City really do. Uh, no impact on the race whatsoever. Has been relentlessly critical of Mike Bloomberg. The amazing thing is Mike Bloomberg, uh, like the mensch that he is, has never really did not criticize Bill de Blasio at all, despite the fact that de Blasio, for a couple of years since he's been mayor, has gone after Bloomberg. It is... I mean, he has basically just said... I mean, de Blasio has kind of been relentless in criticism of Bloomberg. Now, maybe there is some kind of uh, uh, complex about this. In fact, Brad Lander, who was a member of the city council, influential member of the city council, certainly a progressive, uh, took over Bill de Blasio's city council seat in, uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, he was asked about, and I think this is a great quote, uh, he was asked about de Blasio's uh, criticism of Bloomberg and his response was, "This is a psych that is a psychological question and not a political question. You do seem to feel, and what he's saying is essentially is that this is not do with politics. This has something to do with Bill de Blasio's own insecurities about uh, not winning, about running for president and getting no traction, and then seeing Mike Bloomberg swoop in because of his money. And we know that uh, Bill de Blasio hates money that's in other people's hands. And that's... Um, you know, we'll have to see whether uh, <laughs> we'll have to see how that continues to play out. Although politically, I think Bill de Blasio should just be quiet because it kind of draws attention to his own ineptitude as a presidential candidate. 
So that's really uh, that's really where we stand this year, <laughs> this week. I mean, it's just been a jam packed week of 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 political news. Um, again, we have Ru- Rudy's phone calls, those phone records, the impeachment thing, a whole bunch uh, to Devin Nunez, the the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, totally unexplained. Devin Nunez also spoke to Lev Parnas as another. Um, there's another one, and um, you know the one thought I think to be left with in the. Uh, with regard to back to Kelly Loeffler for a second, is that Brian Kemp and others are starting to realize that the Republican Party has a suburban problem. They have a woman problem. Uh, I don't know necessarily that it's always as easy a Band-Aid as just picking a woman, but that is something they need to deal with going into the 2020 election. There are a lot of Republicans out there who don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to... uh, consider that they need to broaden their base in order to win, uh, continue to double down on the white men, non-college educated uh, electorate out there. And I don't know whether it's going to be continued uh, electoral success, but it certainly is not going to continue to broaden the base. And it had worked for Trump, but the question is, does it work for others. And I think what we've seen over the past couple elections is it doesn't necessarily work for all Republican candidates. That's it here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. We will see you next week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.